listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Good morning. I'm not Gabe. Uh, You are likely wondering how somebody other than the lead pastor got chosen to talk about money for the first time ever at King's Community. And so this is your first installment of public church discipline, I think. Um, When Gabe shot the topics over to me, and, and asked me to give him a couple of dates. Uh, I, I didn't know that money would be the one that would land on this particular day, but nonetheless, we're here. Uh, and so I think, I think Gabe is, is probably, the if, if we're lining up at the roller coaster, I think Gabe probably wanted me to go first and then kind of watch how the roller coaster went, and then he could, he could then approach that later on. But um, no, I'm, I'm excited to be able to share uh, with you uh, this morning. It's, uh, I'm going to be absolutely transparent and say this is probably the busiest 10 days of the last couple of years for me. And, uh, and so this is um, uh, even to the point that I was at the soccer fields at 8 o'clock this morning, and then we'll be heading back out to the soccer fields for uh, herding cats, also known as, as five- and six-year-old tournament soccer. But uh, anyhow, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So let me, let me read something for us, uh, and, then we'll, and then we'll get started. Mark 12, 41 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned and all she had to live on. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, stories that give us illustrations for how to do life. God, thank you for opportunities to read your word and see ourselves somewhere in the biblical story. God, for some of us, those are examples of what uh, we see. We see a mirror And it reflects back who we are and how we operate. And for others of us, it gives us something to shoot for. Perhaps a really good example of someone who did it well. And so, Father, I pray that as we read through a couple of different perspectives on the topic of money, which for most people brings about a host of of emotions, I, I just pray that God, that you would speak to us individually, but then we would corporately begin to discuss how we deal with it. And if you're up for it, congregation, if you'll just pray for yourself, that you'll be open-minded, open-hearted. Pray for the people to the left and to the right of you. And if you would, if you'd pray for me, that I would have a clear mind, 
and that God would use me, but ultimately that his word would change us. Well, God, we thank you for this time, and um, I pray that it's helpful uh, and a blessing to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, So for those that know me, I have a stepdad and a dad, and um, my stepdad is actually a really cool dude. So he has the distinct privilege uh, for the past 25, 30 years of being the official scorekeeper for the Texas Rangers baseball team, uh, which to him is no big deal. And to everybody else, when I tell them that, their first question is usually, if, well, if they're any from, from Houston, then they hate my, my, my stepdad. But if they're not, uh, and they have any love towards the Rangers, then they want tickets and they want to know, does he really get to go eat games? I mean, does he really get to eat food during the games? Does he really keep the scorebook? Like he is the legit, has the official scorebook. When he marks an error and a player doesn't like it, he gets a phone call from the player, from the dugout. I mean, it's, it, it's a lot of weight. Anybody remember, it was about three years ago, there was a huge debacle at Ranger Stadium where Joe Torre got involved. There was an error called in right field. Nobody watches baseball here. That's okay. Uh, anyhow, uh, within a matter of 20 minutes, the player had called the press box. The player had called the players' union, and Joe Torre was on the phone with my stepdad before the inning ever ended all because of a pop fly that touched nobody that he marked as an error that the player was griping about. That's his life. Uh, Needless to say, uh, he knows baseball better than anybody that I've ever met. Uh, He actually got to serve as the press director for uh, the Olympic team back in the 80s and 90s. So he's, he's got a pulse on baseball. And I remember Years ago, I had come out of college, and, uh, and we were sitting talking baseball, and, and, and I loved the game. Uh, I was a decent baseball player, but being 5'9 and not throwing faster than 85 uh, with my right hand meant that I could just be a decent high school baseball player. Um, and, uh, and so I remember asking him one day, I said, what, what would it have taken for me to play at the next level? Because uh, I had dabbled with that question when I was looking at colleges, and I remember uh, Oddly enough, I had really great stats in high school, and not one single college called me. It was really weird. Um, And I don't say that from a place of arrogance. I just remember players all over my team that were position players with less impressive stats. They, They got phone calls to go play at either a junior college or a smaller school, and then we had a couple of guys that went to play for Baylor and A&M. And I just remember thinking, I I went six and two my senior year. We made it to the regional quarterfinals, uh, and I got nothing. And, uh, and I remember asking him what he thought it would have taken. And he said, I think what it would have taken was for you to love the game. And I was like, what? I, I did love the game. He said, no, you didn't love the game. He said, Matt Ritter loved the game. And Matt Ritter, whew, man, what a guy. He was 5'6", uh, uh, little chunky dude that played second base. He wasn't great at hitting. He was a decent fielder, uh, and he could barely get the ball from second base to first base, which if you don't know anything about baseball, it's about 30 feet. Okay, it's the shortest throw that you make. Uh, He wasn't a standout pitcher. Uh, He always played a year up because that's the way that his parents uh, raised him. He played one year ahead, so he was always the smallest kid, the weakest kid. Uh, When he got base hits, they went usually in between like the pitcher and second base. Okay, and he was scrappy and would find a way there. And when he said, if you love the game like Matt Ritter, you might have had a chance. He loved the game more than anything. 
He was the kid that when he finished the baseball game, his uniform was filthy. The eye black was all over his face. His hat was cocked to the side, and he looked like he'd been to war. And he lived that way. He showed up early to practice. He stayed late. He picked up the baseballs in the dugout. He asked to help with anything on the baseball field just so he could be there. He wasn't a great baseball player, but he went to play for DBU one of the best in the nation. And he played second base. And now he coaches a little league team. And when I, when I think to that story and how Matt's love for the game took a very ordinary player and allowed him to play at the next level, it transformed how he did batting practice. It transformed how he did ground balls. It transformed what he did when he ran onto the field. Everything was done at 110% because he loved the game. That's all he wanted to do. And I think for many of us, when we look at scripture and we talk about money, I think that the things that we love come out in the way that we do life. And it's evidenced by where our heart lies. And when colleges called Matt Ritter, they didn't care that he fielded the ball a little bit differently. They didn't get into tactics. They didn't get into uh, really what his grades were. All they cared about was that he loved the game. There's a lot of different ways to field a ground ball. There's a lot of different ways to throw. There's a lot of different ways to get base hits. And they didn't care about any of it. They wanted the player. And so I think as we look at two drastically different stories this morning, I think we get to see the love that's inside of someone transforming the way that they manage or view finances, resources, money. And so if you're, if you're looking at the bulletin, uh, we're actually not going to be in Mark. Uh, we will be in Matthew chapter 19. I'll give you just a second to get there. Uh, two pretty well-known passages. Matthew 19, we'll start in verse 16. And I'll start reading. It says, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus answered, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man then said to him, all these things I have kept. Jesus said to him then, if you wish to complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus turned and said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. 
We're going to read on in just a second, but a couple of things about this passage. So most of the time when we see Jesus approached by someone and asked a question, it's antagonistic in nature. There's several times through scripture that we see Jesus with his disciples and somebody walks up and their motive is really to catch Jesus, right? Uh, And in in this place, if you read through commentary, it actually speaks to the, the humble heart of this man. Uh, who was probably a very wealthy man uh, that was familiar with the temple, probably pretty religious, if we were giving him a a grade on the 1 to 10 scale, a 7 or an 8. Well-versed in the law, but this was not somebody who was walking up to Jesus and saying, so let me ask you this, Jesus, what do I need to do? This man was genuinely asking, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And the interesting thing is that, is that they, they speak in commentary about this man uh, that he probably recognized Jesus as a very well-known prophet and a teacher of the law and a rabbi, but not as the giver of life. There was a slight disconnect there. And so some of the, the exchange is then made clearer when we understand that. And what's funny, if you read on, and this isn't really part of our passage, but I'll throw this in for free. Uh, my favorite is Peter's added commentary to moments like this. You always have one in the crowd, right? And it says in, in, in verse 27, then Peter said to him, behold, uh, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Uh, and Jesus then said, truly, I say to you, those who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glories, and he goes to speak to essentially say, Peter, I got you. But if you, if, you, if you notice, after this exchange, the man walks away sad. I think Peter's looking around at the disciples and he's kind of like, um, we did that. Do we get to go with you? Like, can we, can we go ahead and get that out on the table? And so there's this element of humor that Peter wanted to make sure that we had checked the box, okay? And so uh, it, it's interesting when we, when we dive into this passage that after Jesus said, Go and sell everything. What happens? The man doesn't argue. The man doesn't negotiate. The man doesn't try to rationalize. He just walks away. And what Jesus was doing was exposing a sinfulness in his heart, a love for something other than God, not trying to leverage his finances to alleviate the poor although that's a great thing. Let's look at another example. We'll be back in Mark, and this will sound familiar. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. And this is what I I read to kick off. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to one cent. Calling calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, she put in all that she owned and all that she had to live on. This passage is sandwiched in between um, some pretty harsh words uh, and, and is actually the last uh, word spoken in Jesus' public ministry as recorded in Mark. Uh, but right before this passage, Jesus is talking uh, essentially to the scribes and Pharisees about 
their wickedness and about the potential destruction of Israel and the temple. And then he leads in with this. And one of the things that we, we see is that Jesus draws a stark dis- distinction between those he was speaking about previously, the Pharisees, and how they choose to do life, and the poor slash the widow, which are used by Jesus as an example of those that are pure at heart all throughout the New Testament. And so when we look at the the, the stark contrast, the, the interesting thing is that for most of us, it's easy to look at these passages in hindsight and go, absolutely, I get it. I'm not the rich young ruler, and most of us are probably not the poor and downtrodden widow. Most of us, I would say, probably read these two passages and land ourselves somewhere in the middle. I don't know how I would respond if Jesus asked me to sell it all to give it all away. I think I'd have a lot of questions. But then I look at the other passage and I see someone who willingly did that without being asked. And I can't relate. And so I don't don't know if you sit there and you look at these two passages and you try to rationalize, well, how is it that we're supposed to do it? Because I think when I, when I started to pre- prepare for this talk, and I've sat through many a money talk, uh, there's a lot of ways to do the financial talk and the financial sermon, and a lot of them have to do with X's and O's. How to structure finances and tidbits and best practices and, and, and how we sort our money and who gets what first and where it goes. But I think for many of us, if we, have to, we have to take a step back to see how we truly feel in our hearts about finances and about what God has called us to before we can ever move forward in rationalizing tactics and how we do day-to-day finances. And so as we move forward, I want to do, th- do two things. One, I want to I give us three cautions uh, and then two pieces of wisdom. Can I do that? Three cautions and two pieces of wisdom. The first caution is that money and wealth is blanketly viewed as a blessing. And I think for many of us, we also, as a second part to that, have to redefine the term rich. So if you're taking notes, money, wealth is blanketly viewed as a blessing. And I think we have to redefine our rich. When I was a kid, five, six years old, uh, my mom and I were, uh, and, and little brother were actually going to the grocery store. And uh, I remember seeing uh, a, a, a young mom with a, a young child sitting outside of the grocery store. And my mom re- recalls this story that we were ecstatic uh, because we had asked why she was sitting out on the curb. And my mom said that she was holding a sign uh, that said that she needed food and money. And we were like, well, this is a no-brainer, right? She needs something. We're going to the grocery store. Let's, let's kill two birds with one stone. And she said that in our five, six-year-old little hearts, that this was a moment of joy just to answer, answer this prayer. And so we go into the grocery store and I remember my mom said that uh, she kind of gave us one basket to push alongside her basket. And so we'd get groceries for us. And then we were filling a basket for this, this mom and young child outside. And I remember loading up the car and getting to the, to the, to the space where she was uh, and watching her and my mom embrace and then me helping unload in every bit of my six-year-old might all these groceries and then watching money exchange as my mom gave her money. And it was a simplistic six-year-old viewpoint that said, there's a need and I want to answer it. 
And fast forward, when I was 14, I was on my way to a soccer game. Shocking. And I had my headphones on, and we were, put, we were sitting at a light, uh, just about to go over an overpass. And, uh, and I look over, and there's a man <clears throat> who was obviously homeless holding a sign. And it was kind of a flashback, and I took my headphones off. And I remember asking my mom what I thought he did to land himself there put my headphones back on and we drove on to the field and we get to the field and I look over and my mom is weeping. And she said, I want to know where that little heart went. You have no idea why that man's there. Where's that six-year-old heart that just said, I want to answer a prayer. I want to help. I think for many of us, something happens in between this childlike, no judgment self into a, we think people land themselves into situations. And so we begin to divide people into those that have as being blessed, blanket blessed, and having done things well, and those that don't have as not being blessed, and having done something to get themselves there. And I think that that's a dangerous place for us to live. Matthew will say it this way, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. All throughout history, people have viewed financial well-being as God's hand of favor. And while there are plenty of examples of godly people and prosperity, there are far more examples of prosperity leading, leading to ruin. And so I think we have to be really careful that we blanketly think that doing a good job and being good and being in God's favor equals being rich, and likewise the opposite. I think that's just a dangerous place to be. The second caution uh, is that we have to be careful that money itself doesn't become our foundation, that we don't genuinely find comfort. I think all of us would acknowledge uh, that finances are important. I think all of us would acknowledge that we like money. It's important to live, right? And so I'm not ascribing this demonizing finances or even chasing after wealth as a bad thing, but when it becomes our comfort then it drives how we choose to do life rather than the way that we are doing life being a mode or a a method for our finances to flow through. Proverbs 18.10 says it this way, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong tower and like a high wall in his own imagination. See, I think money itself is a really bad counterfeit for a foundation. It is a really, really bad place to place your comfort because it's fleeting. I remember having a conversation with my stepdad post-2008. And at the time, I was a youth pastor making about $31,000 a year. And so the uh, financial crisis didn't really rock my world a whole lot. The uh, 403B was still doing okay with about 900 bucks in it. But I remember having a conversation with my stepdad and then now being in the mortgage business hearing people's stories of living through the greatest financial crisis of our lifetime. 
and how people were devastated that all that they thought they could take comfort in was cut in half, if not more than that. And speaking with my stepdad, it changed how he lived the next 15 to 20 years of his working life because he was terrified that someday all that he had worked for was going to go away. ESPN reports that 78% of professional athletes, specifically in the NFL, 78% after the second year of leaving the NFL, 78% of them are either bankrupt or on the verge of bankruptcy. This is the cream of the crop in the financial specter. And so I think it's a really dangerous place for us to put our comfort. Number three, caution. Don't allow money or finances to usher in extreme joy or immense sadness. This is really close to the second one, but, but slightly different. And so I think that, that those that we watch that go through these huge emotional swings from super joyful to immense sadness run a great risk of doing this all their lives, right? Because money comes and money goes. There are really good days and really good years, and there are some that aren't so great. And things can change in an instant. In, uh, in 2011, we moved to shirts, and uh, we were going to move uh, a certain weekend, and then uh, I was told by the employer that I was coming to work for uh, that we actually had to be in uh, July 4th week, uh, which meant my volunteers that were going to make the trip from Houston uh, to shirts, because we knew nobody here, uh, went from about eight to zero. Uh, so it was me and Megan uh, and Molly, who happened to be three months old at the time, which meant Megan was a no-go. So it was me. Uh, and we had a 24-foot, 26-foot U-Haul that we were going to land here. And, and so I was scrounging around trying to figure out how I was going to get this truck unloaded. Uh, loading it in Houston was no problem, but when we got here, I didn't have anybody. Uh, and, uh, and so I remember um, reaching out to my dad, and uh, my dad and I don't have... A, a super close relationship, but he was the last person I could think of. Uh, and I can't remember if he was retired, but at, le- at the very least, he was a pilot, uh, which meant he probably had a week off at a time because uh, all pilots do. Just kidding. Um, but he did. He had a lot of time off. So I called him and lo and behold, he, was, uh, he had a, a, a stint where he was going to be home. And so he said he would fly down. He would help me move, uh, unload the truck, and then he'd fly out the next day. Uh, and when he got to San Antonio. I remember going and picking him up at the airport and we're in a whirlwind. Three, three months post first kid, we've just moved. Uh, and in fact, I had moved my wife and uh, our first kid away from grandma and grandpa. This was first grandkid. So that was a, a fun tension that was also hanging around. We knew nobody in San Antonio. We didn't have a church. We didn't know anything. Uh, and so there was a lot going on. And I was starting a new job in three days. And, uh, and I remember my dad got in the car and we started to have a conversation and it was a little bit of small talk at the beginning. And, uh, we land on this bombshell of a moment where he tells me that him and his, uh, second wife, my stepmom are getting a divorce. And it kind of took me back. They had been married 10 years. Uh, and so we knew this sweet lady as my stepmom and hadn't spent a ton of time with her, but, uh, she was, she was part of our family. And, uh, and as we're driving back, we're having a conversation about it. And he's just, he's just down. 
Uh, but he's not sad down. He's mad down. Uh, and it was, it was a little bit awkward, and I remember digging into that conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I realized that the thing that had made him the maddest and the saddest was that during the divorce paperwork, as they had been working on it for several weeks, it was found out that my stepmom had about 150 acres in North Texas that had a whole lot of oil rigs on them, and that that was left out of the prenup. And he was mad. I'm sure he was sad about the divorce side of it, but I watched this extreme emotion consume my father because he felt as though he had missed out on some financial peace that he felt entitled to. And I love my dad, but when I look at that and I think of the massive swings that money can do to our emotions, extreme joy or immense sadness, I don't want to give money that kind of power over my life and over my family. And I never want to show my kids that that matters more than relationships because that's all I heard from that conversation. That that was more important to him than the divorce that was about to rock our family. And so I would caution us that finances has the ability to get us really high or really, really low. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 will say it this way. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Last part of this will be two pieces of wisdom. And these are, um, I I won't go that these are overly spiritual. Uh, These are practical uh, pieces of of, of advice, if I could narrow it down to two, uh, that really speaks to the heart that I think that that Jesus desires for our perspective and finances. Uh, and the first one is, uh, and, and this may sound overly practical, but it, it's adjust your quality of living such that it matches your finances, but such that it prioritizes generosity and fosters contentment. That's a lot packed into one, so I'll read it again. Adjust your quality of living such that it matches your finances, but also prioritizes generosity and fosters contentment. Proverbs 11.25 will say it this way, the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Uh, Some friends of ours in Houston about eight years ago, these were our best friends in Houston. Um, He was a home builder and he happened upon this amazing piece of uh, of, of land. It was two acres and at the time we were all young with young kids and uh, they snatched up this piece of land and kind of finagled some construction loan financing to, to essentially build their dream home. They'd done really well on a Hurricane Harvey rehab home, and so they had a couple hundred thousand dollars to be able to put towards this dream home, and he was a home builder, so it was kind of checking the box of I get to build my masterpiece and I get to build our dream home that we'll be in for the next, you know, 20, 30 years with our kids, and this is where our family will grow up. And so we watched them, and we cheered them on from the sidelines, and they got this house and this land and this beautiful neighborhood, and, uh, and I remember six months after they moved in, he and I having a conversation and uh, he said, we're going to sell the house. And I was like, bro, this has been a two-year journey. <laughs> you know, you guys have worked really hard, and you got a great deal, and you've got tons of equity in this thing. I mean, my financial brain, I'm in the mortgage world, and I'm like, no, 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 this is not a good idea. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, no. He said, here's what's interesting. He said, we got in, and the, the mortgage payment's just fine. 
He said, but it just feels really weird to live in a 4,500 square foot house with young kids and I may want to change jobs and now my tax bill is greater than 50% of my annual giving. I don't know if I can do it. And this is in no way to project his convictions on anybody sitting here or the size of the house or anything. So this is, that is not my intent. What I'm getting at is that he had done some self-evaluation and had conversation with his wife that in order to live that they want to live and give the way that they wanted to give, they needed to get out of that house because it was holding them hostage. They hadn't really accounted for a three, $400,000 house being valued at $800,000. And so it took them by surprise. And they rapidly made a change. They moved, bought another fixer-upper in the woodlands, and went two and a half miles and kind of did the same thing over again. But it freed them to live generously. And when he told me that he felt awkward living in the home, I think he felt awkward living in the home because at that stage of life and his level of finances, they didn't belong in that home. One piece worked, the mortgage payment, but there's a lot more to it than that, right? And so he had to adjust his lifestyle to match his finances and maximize his giving. And I think for some of us, we have to ask that question. And I don't think it's a guilt-ridden question. It's just an open question. Are we able to give and to live in such a way that the way that we live matches our finances and our giving is done freely and without any type of being held back by something earthly? Can we do that? And if the answer is yes, live in whatever house you want to live in. Buy whatever car you want to buy. But I think the danger is that many of us live outside of our finances. I see it every day. I live in the mortgage world, and so I get to know more about most people uh, than really anybody else other than their CPA. Uh, But I get to see the debt load that people are carrying, and I get to see their income, and I get to see where they appropriate money. And I judge every single one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) But it's hard. It's really hard for me to say yes in moments when I want to go, I don't think it's a really good idea. It's really hard. Because I think in today's day and age, we so easily can have yes. Because there's a way to do it, right? There's a credit card for it. There's a zero down program. There's something that allows us to live in a way that doesn't really match our finances. Dave Ramsey, anybody ever read the Dave Ramsey story? Not Dave Ramsey post-1992, but Dave Ramsey prior to 1992, he was a major, major real estate mogul in his early, early years and in amassed over a million dollars in real estate wealth by the time he was 26. The problem was he talks about how he drove the cool car and he lived up in, you know, this certain area. And so there was this expectation that he was in real estate and so he had money. And so what he would do is he'd actually have all the platinum cards and he tells the story that when he goes swipe that platinum card to get his new Rolex, he would pray that it would go through because behind the scenes he was a wreck and that's what led him to make a change. But the outward appearance of him trying to live a certain way that didn't match his finances had over-leveraged him. And I think many of us gravitate to that, myself included. And so we have to make an adjustment. Second piece of wisdom uh, is to seek wisdom and to talk about money. I think money for many of us has become the new sex topic, right? Years and years and years ago, we didn't really talk about sex. And today, I think money is actually the only thing that nobody really talks about anymore because we talk about sex all the time. 
But I wanna, I wanna ask a question. When's the last time you had a really in-depth, specific, heartfelt conversation about money with someone other than your spouse? And I think many of us would say, man, it's been a long time or never. And I think that some of us treat money as though it's this closet topic that should only be dealt with in the home. Or we can go to a convention and we can listen to somebody teach, but the minute that they put us into small groups and we've got to talk about our budget and where our money goes and how, what our salary is, we immediately begin to back away from the table because that's private information, right? And while I think we can respect boundaries, I think that there is far too little conversation going on and idea sharing and accountability both within the church and outside the church about money because all we take is face value, right? It's all a facade. We see somebody that drives a nice car, lives in a nice house. They make a lot of money. Obviously, they're doing fine. When Megan and I lived in the woodlands, that was probably the number one fight that we got into in the first three years of our marriage was that we lived in a place that was uh, bread and butter for always keeping up with what's next. We lived in the woodlands. And it was a daily struggle for us to not want to look and drive and live in and spend and go like everybody else was. And then as we've moved through life and finances have changed for us, it's been a constant conversation of who are we talking to about finances and who has accountability for us? Proverbs will say, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. I think we have to be vulnerable in finances. I have a man uh, in Houston that is kind of a father figure to me. And I remember two years after he retired, uh, we got to go visit and I take my family over there once a year. And uh, he is one who I watched. I watched how he did life. I watched how he gave to the church. I watched how he sacrificed for his family. I watched him get on the bus at 545 in the woodlands and go down to Chevron for 12 hours a day and ride the bus back and then get in his Saturday morning special is what he called it. It was a little red F-150 two-door with roll-up windows uh, and, and the locks you could still do with your hand. Uh, and he would drive that from his house to the bus stop. And I'm not hating on the Saturday morning special, by the way. He just called it that. And I remember trying to wrap my brain around this guy being a pipeline manager for Chevron and driving a little Ford F-150 that was bright red, that color red, with roll-up windows. And when he retired, I got to have a conversation with him. And listening to him breathe modesty and humility and sacrifice for his family and saving over my life as I'm smack dab in the middle of trying to figure out how to upgrade my 2013 truck to something new just for the heck of it, I'm sobered by listening to a man that said, I didn't care. But now that he's 65, he drives a Ford F-150 Platinum. He has a Shelby Cobra in the driveway. And his kids are at his house three, four times a week with the grandkids. And he's able to shower them. He takes three mission trips a year with his church, ones that he's been on for the past 15 and 20 years. And I've never asked him how much he gives or where he gives. But his life is evidence for me that I don't have to look the way that I make. I don't have to spend that which I have, but I also don't have to deprive myself for all of life. There's a balance. And so for me, he's a source of wisdom. And my challenge for us 
is that you have somebody that you can talk to or look up to or question and somebody that can do the same for you. I know Nick and I, we're, we're about as good of buddies as you can get. And we've talked about as in-depth as you can get about each other's finances. And I continue to tell him that he needs to tithe on his gross because he wants to be blessed on his gross. True story. I heard that one time, so I nag him about it. But he's somebody that I know has my back and has the ability to speak accountability into my life about finances. And so we talk about it. And I'm not afraid to answer questions. And so I think as we move forward, I think there's two major questions for us. One, where is money's place? Where is, where is, where is finances in my heart? And what do I love? Do I love Jesus or do I love his stuff? And how much do I love his stuff? Because I don't want to demonize having things either. And then the second part of that is, is our life being evidenced by a desire to live within our means and give generously, not just to the church, but in everyday life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, your word, and I thank you for examples of people that uh, you were pleased with. God, I pray that we would never be in a position where uh, you ask us to give of ourselves, of our finances, and that we look at it as ours and not yours. God, I pray that we would hold loosely to the things of this earth. And God, I pray that we would be sources of life and generosity for those around us, not just those who are downtrodden and poor, but God, those that are in everyday life. Father, I pray that we would surround ourselves with people that are wise and allow them to speak into our lives. Father, I ask... um, that you would bring about real conversations about the specifics of how we spend and how we save and that we would use those examples to model ourselves after. And God, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves as we begin to assess the amount uh, that we love stuff. And God, I pray that it never replaces our devotion and our desire uh, to know you. Father, I pray that Uh, Our finances are like a river that they flow in with appropriate boundaries and they flow out and not like a flood that leads to a marsh or a swamp and not like a dammed up lake that can get stagnant because it's not flowing, but God like a river. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.